shaking his head when they went into the underground. Morris didn't care. He was already planning how the magic might go. Pity he couldn't sacrifice a man to fuel it. He sat silent beside his friend until Andrew got off. His own stop was farther out. He ducked into a pet shop not far from where he emerged from the underground. From the underworld, he thought, pleased at the analogy. He bought a white mouse and a small wicker cage a songbird might inhabit. You don't want to keep that little fellow in there, the shopkeeper warned, perhaps thinking from Morris's robe that he was a simpleton. He'll gnaw his way out in no time. Morris nodded, walked out. His flat was a couple of blocks from the shop. When he got there, he let the mouse run around in a tin bucket while he went to his books. He scowled as he read. So much ancient Celtic lore came down through enemies like Caesar and Pliny. Who could say, after so long, what they'd corrupted? But the druids of old, the druids of power, had known souls traveled from one body to the next in an endless chain of being. Looping the chain back upon itself was clearly within natural law as they understood it. Through proper ritual and sacrifice, he did hope a mouse would be enough, but could not bring himself to hurt any larger beast, the gods could be compelled to do his will. He studied and planned till evening twilight gave way to full darkness. A little before midnight, he took the mouse, the cage, lighter fluid, and matches down to a little park close by. The streets were quiet and still. In the center of the park stood a clump of old oaks, not old enough to reach back before Roman days, but old. He stood in the clearing at their heart. His own heart pounded. He took the mouse out of the bucket, stuck it in the wicker cage. Then he squirted lighter fluid on both cage and mouse. The little animal rubbed frantically at its fur and eyes, trying to get the stinking, stinging stuff off. Duncan lit a match. He tossed it into the cage. The blast of flame almost burned off his eyebrows. He sprang back, but not before he heard a despairing squeak from the mouse. He almost forgot the invocation he had labored long to prepare. Asus of the Savage Shrine, Ruthless Teutates, Tyrannus the Thunderer, Cernunos the Mighty Horned One, Dagda, the Good God of the Earth, Bronn and Gwyn, and Mider of the Underworld, come to my aid against one who would usurp the place of your glorious heroes of old. I pray you each and separately, let him learn of his presumption. Let it be so, let it be so, let it be so. He was proud of the eclectic spell, summoning the gods of Gaul and Ireland and ancient Britain all together and using the common Celtic pattern of threefold invocation. The wicker cage burned so hot and fierce as the Gauls had once burned criminals, that it left only a smear of ashes on the ground, nothing, he hoped, to bring down the wrath of the RSPCA. He hurried home, went to bed. When he got up the next morning, he switched on the BBC news service, hoping to hear of wild consternation. Nothing, though, was in the least out of the ordinary. His faith didn't shatter, but it bent. He felt guilty about the mouse for years. John F. Kennedy woke up in bed with a redhead. For a second or two, he just smiled. It must have been quite a night. The pounding headache back of his eyes said he'd been into the bottle deep enough to drown. The girl had her back to him. 
Her hair was really spectacular, bright as the early morning sun that peered through the window. She was snoring a little. He chuckled and swung out of bed. His bare feet came down on bare ground. The damp, gritty feel of the dirt, utterly unexpected, brought full awareness flooding back to him. No matter how drunk he'd been, he couldn't have been crazy enough to go off and spend a night with a woman not his wife. Not when he had to meet the prime minister again at ten this morning. He looked around. Where the devil was he, anyway? And how could he manage, as inconspicuously as possible, to get back to where he was supposed to be? The room offered few clues. The walls were plastered, not very smooth. A rickety wooden chair, old as the hills, stood a couple of feet from the bed, with clothes carelessly tossed onto it. And the floor was dirt. Had he met the proverbial farmer's daughter? Did even the poorest farms in England still have dirt floors? He doubted it. The wool blanket he'd shrugged off was scratchy enough to belong on a poor farm. The mattress was wool, too, stuffed into a sack of linen ticking and set on top of a wooden bed frame. Not a spring anywhere in sight. It was probably good for his back, but it was a long way from comfortable. He drew in a deep breath, preparatory to shouting angrily. The shout turned into a strangled gurgle as the symphony of smells hit him. Hit was the operative word. They had an almost physical power to them. Some were pleasant, cooking food, fresh grass. But they were only notes in the greater composition. Wood smoke and horse rang louder. So did horse dung, a minor key variation on the theme of grass. Nor was the horse dung the only dung around. The cool morning air gave the impression that a dozen cesspools had all overflowed at once. Cautiously, Kennedy breathed again. The outhouse stink was not all that had told him of other human beings beside himself and the redhead. Sour sweat smelled staler and stronger than in any locker room after a big game. His grunt of astonishment woke his bedmate. She sat up and smiled at him. She was a beauty. Her eyes, forest green, skin so fair and pale he could see the tracery of veins beneath. Generous pink nipples tipped her breasts. She spoke to him in a language he did not understand. Ah, uh, I'm sorry, what was that? he said. She tried again. Again he recognized no words, though the rhythm seemed familiar. He needed a moment to find the memory. When he'd visited Ireland as a congressman, he'd gone into a pub once for a pint and found the background chatter to be Erse, not English. It had sounded so much like a brogue that he had not even noticed till his Guinness was almost gone. The girl's voice held the same lilt. Kennedy ruefully shook his head. Celt though he was by blood, his tongue was incurably Sassanac. He said, I, uh, I'm uh, sorry, but I really don't follow you. The girl frowned a little. If the unbelievable stench bothered her, she didn't show it. She shifted languages, speaking more slowly. Now the words she used were mouth-filling and guttural. They sounded more like German than anything else. Aside from the phrase, Ich bin ein Berliner, which he'd practiced all the way across the Atlantic, he had no German. This wasn't quite it, anyhow, or he didn't think so. He must have looked dreadfully puzzled, for the girl's frown disappeared. She laughed at him, then spoke again, in yet another tongue. 
At first he thought it was French, though it was no more the French with whose sounds at least he was familiar than the other language had been German. A light clicked on in his head. Not French. Latin. It was oddly accented, not at all what he was used to hearing in church, and had its endings slurred, but it was Latin. The Jesuits had drilled Latin into him in his prep school days. He hadn't used it since, or even thought much about it, but pieces of it, he discovered, remained in place. If the only way to talk with this beautiful naked redhead was in fragmentary Latin, he'd do his damnedest. Qui orbs est? he asked. What city is this? He knew he'd do horrible things to his cases and numbers and verbs, but he didn't care. He wasn't trying for a grade or to pretend to be Cicero, just to make himself understood. He succeeded. The girl's face lit up. She rattled off a long sentence, most of which was gibberish to Kennedy. He did manage to catch the name of the place. It sounded like Kamluden. It wasn't familiar to him. In Britannia Est? he asked. The climate felt British, and the girl looked like someone from the British Isles, though more likely from Scotland or Ireland than England. Britannia, she said, and nodded. Her bare breasts bobbed up and down, too, enchantingly. She laughed again, spoke some more. Again, he couldn't follow all of what she said, but by repeating herself and pantomime, she got across that she thought he was a merchant from Gaul, and that he really must have been drunk last night if he couldn't remember what part of the world he was in. Fear nodded Kennedy's guts. He was stuck back in Roman times. His first appalled thought was that that made Lyndon Johnson President of the United States. Then he decided that wasn't number one on his list of worries. If he'd somehow been sent from 1963 London to ancient Camloden, that implied he also might make the trip in the other direction. But he needed more information. He asked, Quis est imperator Romanorum? Genitive plural, by God. The fathers would have been proud. The girl's shrug was as appealing as her nod had been. She backed and filled until he got the idea no emperor ruled Britain right now, and none had for some time. He shivered, though the room was no worse than cool. He hadn't read Gibbon in a long time either, but he shook his head. No, he couldn't believe it. The girl leaned forward, ran a gentle forefinger along the scar that seamed his back. In Belle? she asked. Was it a war wound? He nodded, not so much to impress her as because he didn't think anyone, however many hundred or thousand years ago this was, would believe in disc fusion surgery. A light fuzz of golden hair covered the girl's forearm. Beneath it, from elbow to wrist, ran a track of small red welts. They were all the more obvious because of her milk-pale skin. As with so much, whenever this was, Kennedy needed a few seconds to recognize them. Bedbugs! he exclaimed, startled back into English. And he'd spent the night with her. If she had bedbugs, she probably had lice and fleas and God only knew what else. He wanted to scratch himself all over at once. Then another thought struck him. If she'd given him the clap, the Romans had never heard of penicillin. He forced himself back toward calm. For the moment, no matter how much vermin disgusted him, he couldn't do anything about them. He still needed information from the girl, too. A word at a time, he shaped another Latin sentence. 
si non est imperator Romanorum, quis est rex Britanniae? Everything he said seemed to amuse the redhead. He couldn't do anything about that. He was a stranger here, from farther away than she could imagine. Again, she spoke too quick for him to understand everything she said, but he got the gist. Britain's current ruler, she called him Dux, Duke, not Rex, King, was somebody named Artorius. He started to take that as just another fact. In its Latin disguise, the name didn't immediately seem familiar. Then he stopped and stared as a couple of pieces to his puzzle fit together. Artorius of Camloden, he said, imitating her pronunciation as well as he could. A moment later, he used the one more familiar to him. Arthur of Camelot? This is Arthur's Camelot? She nodded cheerfully, pleased he'd followed her. She must have understood his words, too. Maybe just the names, but maybe not. What was that second language she tried on him? Old English, perhaps, or something like it? This Camelot? Kennedy wanted to throw back his head and roar hysterical laughter. This, the center of Arthur and the round table and knights in shining armor? A town that, though he hadn't set eye on any of it yet, save one room, smelled like a city dump on a hot summer day? All that chivalry and romance sprung from a garbage heap? I, uh, I can't believe it, he said, more to himself than to the girl. But now his curiosity was kindled. Camelot, he muttered. This I have to see. He laughed a little to himself, breathed in some more of the horrible stink, laughed again. It sure as hell isn't Leonard Low. He walked over to the chair, took his first good look at the clothes there. On top lay two sets of linen drawers, one bigger than the other. He put that one on, tossed the other to the girl. She came all the way out from under the blanket. He admired her legs, though she'd never heard of shaving them. Beneath the drawers were long woolen tunics with hoods, the bigger one a deep blue, the smaller the creamy color of natural wool. When he pulled on the one that was obviously his, he felt a weight to one side. That was how he discovered the tunic had pockets. He reached in, pulled out his wallet, and the maybe dollar and a half in change that had jingled in the pocket of the trousers he'd worn the night before, or more than a thousand years later, depending on how you looked at things. The girl put on her tunic, too, then reached under the bed and got out her sandals. He squatted and discovered another pair, big enough to be his. They had more complicated straps than he was used to, but he managed to fasten them. They felt good on his feet, as if he'd worn them a long time.